I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Welcome to another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. I'm Jeremy Scheinwald. I'm founder of Mission Driven Group, uh, a portfolio of student-related companies. I started this firm uh, 12 years ago and count my lucky stars each day that I don't have to go uh, into an office on someone else's schedule. I'm not a journalist. I'm really interested in hearing about entrepreneurs' journeys through their eyes. Uh, VFA, for those who don't know, is a nonprofit organization committed to revitalizing uh, American cities through entrepreneurship. VFA brings highly talented graduates to cities that need the talent. Uh, cities like Detroit, New Orleans, and more. Uh, and they ensure these firms get the badly needed oxygen. Uh, VFA is a highly competitive program. If you're a college student interested in learning more, check out VentureForAmerica.org. It's been a few months now. The train keeps rolling with remarkable guests. Today is certainly no exception. I'm interviewing Neil Capel, founder of Sailthrough, which he started in 2008 and, as you'll hear, has grown tremendously. Sailthrough developed technology to customize in-app content, web content, and email newsletters to your specific needs. So when you get an email from Business Insider, for example, it should come as no surprise to you that the articles in the newsletter are particularly appealing to you. Sailthrough's technology ensures that you do not get articles that you would not like or not read, and thus helped also ensure that you would stick with the program. Or in the case of, say, a consumer good, it would enhance the odds of you buying something through, say, Birchbox, which is also a client, and uh, their product is tailored to you. Neil is a veteran of the startup world, and has won many an award, including being named to the Silicon Alley 100 in 2011 and 2012. They named him one of New York's top 10 influential and coolest technology leaders. Today, Neil's chairman of Sailthrough, and he's also a venture partner at Bowery Capital. So thanks for being here, Neil. Uh, before we begin, I gotta give a big shout out to our mutual friend, Eric Schrader, founder of Venwise. Indeed. Uh, which creates private communities for high growth executives. Uh, for connecting the two of us. I'm sure Eric will be on the show before long. He's a, he's a good man and, uh, and friend to the entrepreneur. Indeed. Um, so let's talk about your background to start. Um, long ago, before you moved to the States and launched Sailthrough, you grew up in England. So here we have Venture for America. We have a Canadian interviewing a, a uh, interviewing a Brit. Uh, your father, subjects, subjects of the Queen. That's right. right. Well, I guess I'm your, I guess I'm your subject. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll curtsy before uh, <laughs> before you when you, when you leave. Uh, uh, so your father owned a grocery store. What impact did uh, did growing up amid a small business have on you? 
Um, I think it had a huge impact. I mean, uh, growing up in a dead store as well as my stepfather as well being an entrepreneur, I think I was surrounded by it from a from a young age. So it really it, it had a lot of impact. I think for me, I, I probably one of the things I probably learned was I'm not very good working for other people. Um, and, but uh, yeah, I, I saw my dad grow a business and go through the hard times and go through the good times, and uh, and it definitely that excitement that he would have and everything, the, the hard work that he put into it, definitely gave me. Uh, my zealousness for it and also the addiction to work I think um, but uh, it was you know, it was a lot of hard work and uh, I definitely enjoy hard work so he was he was just there around the clock uh, he was there around the clock like an uh, owner operator yeah exactly and, and then the older I get the more I turn into my dad I notice but they <laughs> <laughs> probably all of us I think mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> so what and what brought you to the states um, well, I came out here for a wedding, and I met a woman, as you do at the, at the uh, singles table. And I was like, I was actually on my way to Australia, um, and I was like, wow, oh, well, maybe I'll go to New York. And um, I actually put my resume out in New York and managed to get a interview with Morgan Stanley. Um, and they they kind of they were like, can you come in on um, uh, uh, Thursday? And I was like, ooh, it's a little close. How about Tuesday? And they were like, okay, so came out thinking it was a normal interview not realizing it was a banking interview and it started at nine and ended at five and i had a flight back at you know eight o'clock or something <laughs> uh managed to make that flight but uh only barely um and they offered me the job uh you know a day later and i, I negotiated accepted and and then I called them up a, another day later to tell them I didn't have a visa. So they got me one pretty quickly. I, 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 no, I noticed on your uh, on your LinkedIn page it says it says Morgan Stanley less than a year. <laughs> yes, I think that might be LinkedIn's less than a year, but yeah, it was okay, less than a year. Okay. I did a post nine eleven project for them, and it and then afterwards they they literally had me sitting there twiddling my thumbs for for weeks, which doesn't do me well. I don't do well in boredom. So the, I, I again, you know, looking through your your LinkedIn profile, there's a rapid succession. Of startups, mm. Red Scope, Money Media, A Small World, Music Nation, Hyphen. If you'll allow me, I'm going to go through them, and I want you to say closed, sold, or moved on. You know, in terms, uh, of, in terms sure, of sure. so Red Scope uh, closed. Money, then so, oh well, actually sold and then closed, but yes. Okay, Money Media uh, sold. Financial uh, Times. Okay, A Small World. Small World. I think that was sold multiple times, but not very successfully. <laughs> I would say I'd put that under the closed category. <laughs> okay, Music Nation. Uh, very much closed. That was, yeah, that was the catastrophic event, I think. Okay, okay, yeah. now we got to come back to that. Yeah. Uh, and Hyphen. Uh, hyphen's still going along. Uh, hyphen Love is still going well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so which one of the... Okay, well, let's go back. To, what's catastrophic? What, uh, what? The catastrophic was uh, Music Nation. That was like, uh, that was a... Uh, uh, a funding of uh, of an expense account, I think, for the founders more than anything else. Okay, so you were, you were not well, you were not a founder. Uh, no, a I was not a founder. I was yeah. hired in CTO to come save the technology or whatever, and, and uh, uh, quickly realized that it was not a great uh, not a great company to be part of, really. Okay, okay. Uh, and as you look back, which one are you most nostalgic about? Um, I think that I guess it's it's Redscope and Money Media. Redscope, I ran I ran Redscope, uh, which was just a web shop, um, and we built quite some. You know, it was we built a business in a hard business at the time, uh, and uh, it was I was very proud of what we managed to build with with zero investment. In fact, negative investment sometimes, uh, in the respects that the owners would take money out of the business when I didn't know what was happening. I'm like, ah, oh, and I'd go to you know and find that there'd been a withdrawal from the bank, and I'm like, what? <laughs> Um, so, but it was, we had a really good team and really good people. And then, and I would say, um, money media as well, because that was just a, 
huge success of, of, of development and really kind of building a company from the ground up. And uh, I learned a lot at Music Nation from Mike Griffin, who was the CEO there. Uh, I think uh, a lot of my experience in my professional career taught me what not to do. Um, but I would say that Mike Griffin uh, um, at uh, Money Me- and Money Media, the company, really taught me a lot about how to actually do things the right way. <laughs> so what, did, what did Money Media do? What was uh, it was financial news. It was um, financial news uh, that we, you know, very, very institutional investor and fund management kind of stuff that you would, uh, that, you know, frankly, I would read and kind of drift off halfway through the article. But it was a brilliant, uh, it was a brilliant company that we, and very successful, so... And your, and your Morgan Stanley experience could have uh, contributed a little bit there, or no? Uh, a little bit, but yeah, a little bit. But Morgan, yeah, the Morgan Stanley it was uh, more. I was more on the technical side. It was more of my moving out of engineering. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, let's get to sail through. So you started sail through. I would I imagine the worst possible times. So you started it at a week after Lehman fell apart. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any second thoughts about launching as, as the world was coming crashing down around you? You know, it's funny. I didn't. Um, I uh, I kind of I'd got to it's kind of funny because I the, the the woman I met that I referred to earlier uh, I actually married that weekend uh, and um, I uh, the Lehman collapsed that day of the the Saturday everyone was you know walking out of the boxes and on the, the day of our wedding kind of thing right and uh, but I had on the run up to the wedding I told her afterwards I was going to start the business that's it it's we're in and I you, you waited until after yeah. she had said yes to yeah, yeah exactly I, after she said yes and after the, the actual <laughs> wedding. And I was like, I'm going to do it. Um, and I kind of started to tail off all the consultancy gigs and everything. And I had the kind of business, you know, the, the very thin, lightweight product going. Uh, and I was like, no, nope, I'm going to do it. And I, I never doubted it for a second. I just, what it changed was I had thought about raising money. Um, I thought I would do it. And then that after the Lima class, I was like, sod it. I'm just going to start the business and get going. So, you, so you're self-funded to start. Yeah. How much leeway did you give yourself? Did you say to yourself, look, I have four months, I have eight months, or it's just, I'm just going to do this thing and see what happens? As, as many people that have worked for me probably know that I'm not the, the greatest planner on the world. <laughs> um, I literally just, no, I started with a vision and to just build it and I would build it and I would go. Uh, and um, it was really up until, uh, it was more a case of that I started building a business and I, and I about a year and a bit a year and a half in then I started to see that I couldn't continue to, to keep doing it there was no way I could work the hours I was working uh, with the essential negative income and you know trying to manage everything else in my life there just was no way that I could do it um, so a, I, a year and a half in it's, it's still just you? yeah yeah. Okay. I, you, well, no, that's not true I had, uh, I had a really amazing I, a guy called Noah um, that worked for me fantastic guy who was an out of work actor uh, and I would say that's the best hire you could possibly make because I would tell it, I would say, look, I need you to be an account manager. I would need you to be a customer success person. I need you to be a support person. It was fantastic, and he would just take it as improv, and he was brilliant. So it worked out really well. <laughs> that's um, amazing. But uh, so for the first first year, it was just me, and I would drink copious amounts of tea at home, and my wife would come home, and I'd just start yammering away for hours. Uh, and then Noah came on board, and we worked very closely together, just the two of us, for almost a year. But it was really, uh, you know, when the 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 sort of the debt started piling up to a point where I was like, okay, I need to do something. And I came back from a trip, and I was like, I either have to raise money now, or I shut the business down. Uh, and that was that was sort of January of 2012. Is that right? Yeah. And and no, 2010. Sorry, January 2010. And you have a you have a co-founder, right? Yeah, I have two. So, so um, I started so I started the business, um, and I uh, I got uh, Chris Chapman and Ian White to come on board to help build the the initial product, a very light framework kind of product. 
Um, and then I started selling it. Uh, and as soon as I raised that first round, I actually brought them on um, uh, later on in the in the company's growth um, to, as full time. But yeah, for those first two years, I mean, obviously they were working very hard with uh, on their you know outside of their their normal daily lives uh, and trying to fit it all in. And uh, so it was a work ethic from all of us. But uh, yeah, so that's how it kind of how it panned out. Gotcha. So there was no interview. You had tested them. You guys worked well I, together. I'd worked, I'd worked with them before. Right. I, I, I worked with Ian for many years and I worked for Chris with quite a few. Yeah. So you, you talked about you're kind of like bursting at the seams. You, you've got it. You basically have no choice but to raise money. Um, the funding environment is, 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 has even accelerated now. Um, uh, you know, and we see these numbers, you know, company raises $200 million or, you know, $50 billion valuation. Um, so you guys raised raised $48 million, at least according to Crunchbase. Yep. Um, how do you determine that you're going to raise $19 million instead of 17 or 15 or 21 or 26 or 80? Well, I, I would say that the, the, the first seed in A, you, you kind of just wing it. Uh, <laughs> the you figure out what you need uh, to last over you know a year in those seed stages. As later goes on, you get more and more planning. You've got more and more predictability to the business. You can predict what you need. And I've only really raised what we've needed. Um, usually, we'll go. You know, usually there's some sort of playing around sometimes when you've got as many seed investors as I did have in my first round. Um, so you kind of have to play around with the number a little bit to make everybody happy. Um, but essentially, we were looking at you know we needed nineteen point two million or something to for for a year and a half worth of runway, and that was what we ended up raising just over that. So, so you actually had that earmark. Yeah, so we, uh, yeah, we, in the early days, I mean, uh, you know, didn't really have a CFO at the time um, of those raises. I mean, we did just as sort of doing the 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 B and the C. Um, but in the early days, uh, you know, I would financially model it out quite. That was probably the only, the planning that I would do is the financial modeling in the early days. Other than that, there was pretty much a, a PowerPoint and a, and a financial model. I when I showed the financial model that I had at the seed round financing, a lot of the VCs were like, "Whoa!" It was I mean, it was I did it as an engineer would. I had sheets that were completely linked to all kinds of things. You change one thing, and the whole thing would change. I spent hours on hours and hours creating that. Um, that for me was security and figuring out what I needed for the business. And 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 in. You know those series. You got some pretty impressive VCs that uh, that backed you. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you connect with those VCs, and and how did did you have to choose between VCs? Or was there were there yeah, some yeah. VCs who found themselves on the outside? Yes, uh, you definitely have to choose your VCs. I, it, you know, someone told me this recently. Oh, who was it? Um, and it was such a brilliant uh, idea. Uh, he was like, "You've got to choose your VCs in the respects of the people that when you're raising money, if they call you on the phone." and you take a pause before answering, those are probably the people you don't want the money from. <laughs> you want to be really, really happy to talk to them. Because VCs, are, you know, you've got to, you, as I said, as I've said many times before, is that you can get divorced but try getting rid of a board member. Mm. Um, you know, you've really got to pick these people that are going to help you grow your business. Um, and you're going to be working with them really closely and you need to make sure that they're, they can leave their egos at the door and can have a, you know, a really constructive conversation around the table. So we absolutely, you know, we we I've spoken to so many VCs over the years. I I can't even imagine um, how many. Um, and I've annoyed a few when I've taken other term sheets from other people. Um, but uh, you've got to select what's right for you and what gets you, what can actually get you real added value. Because there's a lot of there's a lot of VCs that you know talk a big game and 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 really can't add much value. So it's really you've got to find the cohesion of being able to sit across the table from someone and get value from it, um, as well 
uh, as be able to just, you know, have someone that can advise you all the time because they hadn't seen it before. I mean, there's not much point. You know, the the funny thing about making, inve- uh, you know, getting VC investment as you go through the sort of seed, A, B, and C is that you go to different VCs as you go through the growth. Um, and they have different experience. And so now you've got a table of people that have different levels of experience. And it's about how do you make sure that you get the best out of all of that? Because it's difficult. So, you're, yeah, you're talking about you know, some of the things that you can get from a VC. Um, you know, for those who, who have never gone through this process, what are some of the things that a VC can provide you with aside from money? Um, the the biggest, I think, to be honest, I think the biggest is experience. Um, there's also the network. I mean, a lot of them will do different um, programs to get you to, you know, to mingle with other CEOs so you can learn from those experience because that, that experience is huge. I would say that VCs that have been entrepreneurs are hugely valuable. Um, they've seen both sides of the table. Uh, and so there's a it does come down to experience because they've seen so much, right? They, they've seen from the outside the different... Uh, companies and whatnot, so they can add a lot of value and they can they can challenge you because that's what they should do. Just as a good CEO should be challenging their team, the board should be challenging the CEO um, and challenge them in, to come up with the ideas, to come up with the solutions that will work for them. So I think that VCs, you know, there's lots of added value in you know, networking connections and, and hiring and, 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 you know, that kind of thing. But when it comes down to it, I think that it's you end up working with one person. Right. However much the VC would love to be able to say, here's the entire team and there's all this kind of stuff. You work with one person. Uh, and therefore, that connectivity, that connective tissue between you and that person is the most important part. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast, a show about entrepreneurs and their stories. So let's let's take a step back here. I want to go back to you working, uh, you know, long hours, uh, you know, uh, recently married, uh, you know, partners who are helping you along the way get get your product off the ground how does an unproven entity get its first customer ah uh hustle it comes down to hustle you have to knock on every bloody door under the sun. <laughs> um you the, the first customer is the hardest i mean you've got to give it away you've got to give it away at you know and then after you stop giving it away then you've got to give it away at the most flexible terms uh then you've got the flexible terms in there then you've got to try and then as you get larger and larger you start sort of getting into things i mean it's only for us you know we 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 now get prepaid and we're you know it's all you know yearly contracts and you know it's fantastic and it's great but that's because where we are where we are um but you've got to go through all the stages through that that evolution to get there which usually depends on you know those first few customers getting it very very cheap and then and the customers afterwards but you gotta just as you do when you raise money you're gonna get a whole lot of no's and you've got to be okay with it and just keep going dust off and get up and run again because uh it's i i I can't i mean in those early days it must have been nine no's to one yes i mean yeah if, if not worse so how many people are at sale through now? 180 odd. 180. And, and can you give us a sense of, of some of the scale that, uh, you know, some of the, the, the rapid growth and change that happened and, and why? There's, um, 
yeah, there's a there's a lot of rapid growth that happens all across there. I would say that there's you have you have points of sort of inflection of of growth that like even from five to ten people and ten to twenty people and twenty to forty people and you see the difference, right? Right. It, the company changes, the ethos changes, um, things just continue to uh, iterate. Things like areas will slow down and then you have to speed them up again. There's so much that goes on. Um, I can tell you that sort of when I look at it as sort of my engineering background, the vast scale of what we deal with on the data side of things is tremendous. I mean, we've our growth there is just absolutely off the off the world. Um, we do over a hundred database transactions per second, which is like you know up there with the very large companies, um, uh, very large B two C companies. You know that do that kind of stuff. It's massive amounts of data. Um, and you see that kind of growth and you see that go through the charts go through and you're like, wow. Um, but uh, I think the the thing that was a little sort of anecdote of that was you see that as a CEO, every single behavior is duplicated in your company. And I remember, I think it was about the 30 person mark where I literally uh, started to realize that anything I said would become kind of the normal terminology. And it's that at that point you're like, wow, I have to lead by a hundred percent example because if I don't, that's going to get duplicated. And what you find is the company gets larger and larger. It's like a, a very much a, you're looking at yourself in a mirror a lot of the time because your weaknesses become the company's weaknesses. And so as a CEO, you got to focus on strengthening. That. I mean, it, it's great because the fact is, you know, someone who knows their weaknesses can become incredibly strong. Someone who doesn't know their weaknesses, you know they don't get anywhere frankly I mean you've got to be that introspective um, but the fact is you've got this vast mirror to look at and you see a behavior and like oh wait a minute that's that's me <laughs> and you're like now I know why we're weak in this area um, so you have to that that kind of growth you see as you have more and more people and as you get you know as you get more and more people they duplicate more and more of it and so uh, did you ever I mean, are you, this massive growth um what were the what were some things that, that that really creaked and you were like oh boy this could go the wrong way you know was there a department that was just missing was there were there key hires I mean clearly there had uh, be periods of time where the key hires that were missing just because you were growing so quickly. yeah yeah um, there's different I, there's different areas I mean I would say that you know we searched long and hard for um, head of HR early on we started early um, to bring on someone. And um, it took us a long time to find someone. And when we did, it was amazing. But it was by then it was a little late. If I hadn't started when we did, I don't know what we would have done. <laughs> um, the uh, for me, it was such a huge part because you have to invest in the people. Um, the I believe that you know if I know again to sort of that if I get bored, I'm I'm not I'm not going to add value. I'm not going to do what I need to be doing. If I'm not, you know, if I'm bored, so therefore I need to make sure everyone stays interested and, and involved because I want people that want to enjoy and learn and self-improve. So we, I wanted a, I wanted the human resources to be the first place people go because in a lot of companies, the human resources is the last place, right? It's the last thing on the hurdle to be before either being fired or laid off or whatever. I wanted it to be the exact first place where people go because I needed it to for people to be invested in them, to self-improve and to keep going so that they would know to go to HR and say, hey, look, I'm having this problem communicating this to my manager, right? Or the you know that kind of thing. I wanted that kind of response to create something where people could always improve. And so finding that was difficult and... And frankly, you know, it was 
it was a hole. It was a massive hole, and we had so many like issues because we we knew we needed to do stuff. But we just didn't know how to do it. We didn't have the time to do it. We didn't have someone to do it. You know. You talked about leading for leading through example, mm -hmm. um, and you know other people noticing what what you were doing. Did you during, the, during these years? Did you have a personal life? Were you able to to shut it down? Were you there at all times? Uh, one of the things that I've always talked about in in the company is a, is the work life integration. Um, a lot of people talk about work-life balance. I don't like work-life balance because I think that you have to give up one for the other. I, I think work-life integration is more of a, a better way of looking at it. And uh, so I've always talked about work-life integration. I have been pretty bad about it my entire uh, time at Sailthrough. Um, it's probably the one place where I kind of caveat everything and I'm like, look guys, I know I believe in this and I need <laughs> you to look at it. I'm not that good at it. Um, it's only in the last uh, year to 18 months that I've been able to separate myself and do things like that. And so I started off by going, taking like four-day weekends and literally turning the phone off and giving people my wife's cell phone number if they needed to get a hold of me, uh, which um, works out really well. Because uh, <laughs> you're not getting a, the hotel or anything like that. You give them their wife's cell number, they, they, they don't tend to bother it unless it's an emergency. Uh, but uh, I started to I started to adapt to that. Um, the first uh, four or five years, not really. I, I just was booking it. Not a vacation, not a no, <clears throat> not really. Or if it was, it was a working vacation. It was working somewhere. Yeah. So. What uh, What was it like that first time when you gave your wife's cell phone out and and turned off your? Uh, uh, it was your, pretty. I, it's pretty crazy. It uh, I would say that you know um, a lot of people talk about uh, meditation these days and whatnot, and I've and I, I'm not disciplined about it. I will. And I find it very beneficial. And I think that when I when I can turn off like that, it's I come back on a whole other channel. Um, I think that you have to get work life integration right. Uh, I definitely am not the prime example of that yet. <laughs> <laughs> the and of course, uh, when you turn back the, turn the phone back on, the world was still standing. Mm. Was, there, was there ever an instance where you're like, oh my god, I can't believe I missed that on this over this weekend? No, not really. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, it, it didn't happen like that. But it, it, it is funny now that you have because my my all the people that used to work for me used to know when Wi-Fi wasn't so prevalent on the planes and everything is they used to know when I landed from a plane because they'd just be able to find right. like vast quantities of email but no, no they're, they, the, um, you can it, never have I sort of really turned off and, and had to be like oh my god I missed that but. So your role evolved and, and changed obviously as the, I mean, the company grew so, so quickly what were the things you know, what were your iterations as a manager what were you divesting you know as you moved along and what became I, your focus um, it's funny I it's I would say that I divested of stuff pretty quickly I was quite happy to I was not one of those CEOs that needed a had a complete control freak kind of uh, sort of aspect of looking at things I I was quite happy to divest everything as quickly as I could and put the right people in place I found that you know in the middle stages of the company it was really all about hiring and raising money <laughs> you know um, if you put the right people in the in the right seat then you were then you could you know relax and let them do their job and I feel that as the the job of the CEO is to make sure that uh, you are an amazing communicator that can encourage communication within the teams that can challenge the teams to challenge each other and to get better and to self-improve and to know things and and essentially get to a point where the CEO makes very minimal decisions because that's really where you need to be you almost you know need to put yourself out of a job in the respects so you need everybody to be making such excellent decisions that hardly ever that there is a decision that's needed at the CEO level that's really what 
being a CEO is about because then you've put the right people in the right place and you've given them the trust to do what they're meant to be doing. They are the ones that are more experienced in their field. Right? As a CEO, you become a jack of all trades and you know, it's, you, you're not more experienced in each of these fields. There's just no way. You hire the person for it and you expect them to do it and you reward them with that trust of doing it. So you, you, I think we're touching upon issues of culture here. Mm. How would you define, um, how would you define the, the sale, through, how would you describe this, the sale through culture? And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a brief digression and say that past guest Will Nathan, uh, I, I was online and I noticed that Home Polish helped, uh, mm -hmm. helped to design your offices, mm -hmm. which are uh, in what everyone would expect from a, from a good startup environment. Pretty cool. Yeah, uh, indeed. Pretty indeed. interesting. They did a great job for us. Yeah. Um, but, but how would you describe not just obviously the physical environment, but the culture at sale through? So for me, when people ask me the culture, and I know I've spoken a little bit about it already, but for me, the culture culture is very much about self-improvement in the respects of I don't want people to ever think they're clocking in and out of a job right if they're not learning on the job if they're not learning something uh, then you know I understand why they shouldn't be there for when someone leaves to go and take on a massive role at another company that or to start a company that's the most exciting time for me because then you know our job as managers should be to take someone to the next level how do we get them to step up to that next you know point in their career that's our job and if we get them to step up to a point where they go and take a massive promotion at a different company at a smaller stage or anything then we should celebrate that and that should be absolutely one of the best possible things we can do um, and that for me is the culture is that how do we create an environment which is fun where people learn and people are aggressive to work they want to work um, it, it's not a place for everybody in the respects of that it's you know we have a, a results only work environment in the respects of I don't you know I don't mind when people come in I don't care when they come in as long as they're doing their job and getting the results that they should be doing so um, it's really about look if you can do your job then great um, and we'll reward you for it and the more you can do and the more you can invest in it the more you can you can benefit from that uh, and it's a trust. It's it's trust. You know, you hire someone to do a job. You're going to trust them to do it. And you've got to let them do that. Um, on the other factor of that, on the other side of that, that can show up lack of performance. Like it's obvious to other people when you're not in that same mo mode. Um, and so it's a it's a fast moving culture, but at the same time, it's a very rewarding culture, and it's something that keeps people en you know engaged and learning. Because if you're not learning, I, I mean, for me, if you're not learning something, you're kind of it's kind of you're kind of dead. Yeah. So, you, so you do notice some people who you give them a lot of leash and they and they hang themselves because they just got they've got so much freedom and flexibility, and maybe they're not ready for it. Well, I I don't know if it's that that I mean, there's enough work to do that there's always enough that they can see that they what they should be doing. But I think right. that there's a uh, there's an inherent there, there are people that want to have you know a nine to five kind of position and that and and there are plenty of those around and, and I'm happy for those people to have those just not really a sale through it doesn't really work and they actually kind of self-select out because they see everybody running at a different speed and trying to do and do more with it the, with their career inside um, so it, it tends to kind of self-select out and you know and I, I feel bad but at the same time I'm like look this is if you're not happy in your position you shouldn't be there Right? Yeah. It's better for them to be somewhere else where they can be happy. Right? You're never going to make everybody happy. You can make an environment where people are very, you know, encouraged to be happy by everything that's around them. And I think a lot of people confuse that, you know, perks with culture. And I mean, I can talk about all kinds of perks and things and that. But really, it's about how do you invest in people that they can make themselves happy. Because I'm not going to make everybody happy. 
right? And and that way, you know, you can end up with a really good team and want to do that and keep going, keep going forward. I mean, one of the I believe in the self improvement thing so much that one of our things is a perk, which is we do have a self improvement budget for everybody every year, and that's what they can spend it on. I don't care what it is. Right, as long as it's self improvement. Now that means that, you know, they could go and learn fencing and they could get you know, or they could go and uh, learn to be a sommelier. I don't mind because they're benefiting from it and they're investing in themselves. Um, it doesn't have to be something directly related to their job. It's something to invest in themselves. Are those actual examples of people invest in fencing lessons yeah. and sommelier? Yeah, yeah. They are. Well, give us are there any other quirky ones uh, out there? What are the quirky ones? We've had a few um, I think those are probably the quirkiest. There was one, oh man, I can't remember. And some of them are just more traditional. Yeah, a lot of them are more traditional. Um, you know, it's funny because I get, you know, people come to me occasionally and we won't, we, I won't pay for the gym with it. Uh, right. You know, gym subscription because I'm like, I'll end up paying for a bunch of gym subscriptions no one uses. Right. I'd rather, you know, if you want to get a personal trainer for, ten, you know, 10 sessions or something, then great because you're going to be personally invested to go then. Right. Right. But if I, you know, I could end up with a whole bunch of gym subscriptions you're paying for and no one's using them. I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so, we, you know, it's, it's good. But I think fencing was the, the funniest one that I've seen in a while. What, uh, so what are some of the other, you know, I mean, obviously the tech world right now, you know, it's sort of trades on profligate perks. What, uh, what is, uh, what are some of the other fun perks that you guys oh, have you had? do all the normal ones, you know. I mean, we've, uh, we've been a long-standing behind, because of the work-life integration that I talk about, we've long, we've stood behind unlimited vacation for a long time. Um, you know, but uh, they're, they're just all the normal other ones. But I would say that, that, you know, some people don't like the unlimited, you know, whatever. The unlimited's fine, as long as you're giving notice of when you're going to go and whatnot, and that kind right. of thing. And there's some stipulations around how many contiguous weeks you can take and that kind of thing, but you know, I, they're perks. They're they they're not they're not the culture. I mean, they're they're just uh, the additive to a, an office environment. You know, obviously we have the beer in the fridge and uh, you know that kind of thing. Obviously, obviously a beer in the fridge. Well, you gotta you know, it's <laughs> just a, you know, not it's typical. Not typical. Yeah, well, not typical in a lot of large companies. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's more and more typical these days. Yeah. So, when did you? Maybe you haven't, but but. I'm assuming with with sorry, how many people are there now? 185, 185, yeah. 185, yeah. Um, do, you, do you know everyone at the, at the firm? Uh, at I am pretty good. I'm not perfect. Um, I have um, I have uh, essentially the entire user directory on my phone, and I will go through it once in a while. And they will. There's most ninety percent of them have the photos in there that are correct, and I'll go through to kind of refresh. I was told that you you kind of run out at the hundred mark. Um, I've definitely surpassed that. Okay. Uh, I've definitely gone to the 150 mark. I I might be. It might take me two seconds to get the name sometimes, but I'll get it. Um, I'm fairly diligent about making sure I know everyone in the company. Um, I've got a little lax recently, and I'm I've, I invest just before I came here. To be honest, I was wandering around talking to a bunch of people, which is partly why I was late. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, exactly. What? Uh, so how do you think? How do you think they would describe you as a manager? How do you think the, the members of your team would describe you? Um, how would they describe me as a manager? I think that they would say very hands off. Um, I the uh, you know again going back to the fact that I trust them to do their job. Uh, I think they would say you know it's hands off but very challenging to get to them to that next level and very much a coach I think um, I the coaching I think is one of the most things one one of the reasons we use Venwise one of the reasons we have a coaching program within the company it's very much about how do you how do you bring people to the next level and I, f I see that 
my role is to really you know sit down and, and coach them through examples of communication and get them to to do that rather than sort of telling them what to do and Salesforce evolved and you moved into a role of chairman what does your new portfolio look like as chairman of Salesforce? Uh, it's um, it's still early, um, but essentially for me, it, it's very much uh, you know being involved in all of the larger sales deals, um, being out on you know speaking to the market a lot more, and and still investing very much in the culture of the company. Uh, those are the kind of the passion points for me, um, and so it's a it's a it, we're still figuring it all out. Um, but uh, as we go through the transition, but it's uh, it's a good it's it's been very fun. I've had a lot more headspace. Uh, I've gotten involved a lot more with the product, so I think that the product team is, is seeing a lot more of me now. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it's that's I'm I'm naturally sort of going towards where I want to go. Uh, which tends to be a product and, and, and talking to our customers. I get more time to spend with our customers now. I have no segue for this at all, but <laughs> I watched a video online of you <laughs> describing a pretty harrowing skiing accident. Uh, you told the story mostly with a smile. You're a pretty affable guy here. You like to laugh a little bit, but there was it did seem even harrowing for you to tell it a little bit. Uh, are you still skiing? Can you can you give us uh, can you give us that that crazy anecdote which was really chilling to, uh, to even listen to? It's kind of funny. I'm still skiing very much. And the, the funny thing about that was that I was on this panel that it was kind of like it was going on and on a bit and it was like the audience was getting a bit dragged down and whatnot. And so it came in and they'd asked us, us to sort of share a story or whatnot. And so I said to the audience, I said, do you want to hear uh, a life-changing event or you know a startup something else story about you know building the business and they all went for the life-changing event i had never told that story on stage i'd never even like i don't even when i tell it in like one-on-one -on -one, i get i would get emotional about it and i was like i started to tell the story on stage and i was like my god what am i doing <laughs> um which is interesting because the fact is that people do find it often now when they search my name um because i think it's becoming more and more popular so it tends to be one of the ones that's in the top <laughs> results it was the first thing I found, actually. Uh, exactly. When I was doing so research, like when that you, was it. That's it. Yeah. And so, so the thing is, is that the um, and so I told it on stage, and now I can actually tell it very a lot better. But it was one of the most harrowing events in my life because I literally was uh, I was off piece skiing on my own, which you're not meant to do, and I know that as used to be a, a ski race trainer and a ski instructor back in the day, and I know exactly what you shouldn't do and what you should do, and I was doing it, uh, and I skied off uh, between the resort and the chalet where we were staying. And uh, I went round um, a corner, and there'd been a slide, and I was like, "Ooh!" Uh, and I turned around, and I knew where I was, and I knew that I was over a cliff, and uh, I knew where I was skiing, and everything, and I knew the drop was there. But I turned around, and as I turned, I just slipped, and I started to fall. And I remember my, I remember gripping at the edge as I went off the edge, oh and I remember God. my hands holding on to the the two, the sort of thing. And that was the last kind of thing that I remember at that point. Uh, which I, I'm white knuckling right now, listening. <laughs> so, uh. And then I and then I fell uh, and I fell 180 feet. Uh, they think wow. I they think I hit twice on the way down, um, and I landed in between two rocks, pretty much two boulders in fairly hard packed snow. Uh, and then I stood up from that, and I was like, okay, I'm in trouble. Uh, so I called and I tried to sort of tell them where I was and it wasn't going very well. So uh, I managed to call and, and they took him. So anyway, I call them. They're kind of trying to locate me. I call my stepfather who speaks the language much better and he tried to help them locate me. Uh, I sit down at this point um, and then I couldn't stand up. 
uh, and then I laid down and then that was it I was stuck where I was and I wasn't moving um, and it took him about two and a half hours for them to locate me and another 30 minutes for the skiers to get there so the skiers got there first at which point is when I did go into shock uh, the helicopter arrived just shortly afterwards the doctor, I'm not kidding, I remember this he jumped out of the helicopter in ski boots with no rope and there's another cliff beneath me, so I've fallen one cliff there's God. another cliff there there's, there's, and it, you remember the, like, the mash, you know like the, the tiny little mesh wire kind of helicopters they have in mash right. you know, the old TV series dating ourselves yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, those kind of little helicopters, one of those little helicopters but red, not green uh, and he, he flew over and he literally leapt out of this helicopter and it was like, uh, surely you should have a rope or something anyway <laughs> He, um, uh, they pumped a whole bunch of morphine into me at that point, uh, put me in a casket and hung me from the bottom of the helicopter as he jumped back in, as you do, uh, and they flew me off across the Alps. Um, the crazy thing was that I had a mini disc player dating ourselves again, uh, in my, <laughs> in my, in a pocket that had a massive dent in it from where I hit and it was pretty much over my heart. Uh, and the second thing was that um, in the two and a half to three hours I was lying on the ice pack, not moving, stopped the internal bleeding that I was having in my kidney. Um, so <laughs> between those two things, and if you add in the fact that the cell phone that I had on me didn't work in the resort and it didn't really work at the house, but somehow it God. worked where I landed, um, yeah, it kind of changed a few things. I, and, it's, I, and it's only now that I can really tell this without like getting emotional. It took me about... It took me four years to be able before I could even sort of talk about it. I think. I mean, I was just trying not to interrupt you the entire time. I was just like, I, I, there's so many moments where I was like, oh my god, like I can't believe this. Uh, that's crazy. Uh, and then, and then, but get this, I don't understand this. My my mum and stepfather were out there like three years later, and they took a picture of the cliff for me in summer and sent it to me. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, wow, it's great. not so bad. Thanks. I'm like, thanks. <laughs> Look how friendly this cliff looks in summer. You know? It's all green. That's, that's crazy. So you were, you were like 22 years old when that happened? Uh, I think I was 23, actually. 23. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Mm. Okay, no segue there. Uh, <laughs> I want to uh, um, ask you one or two other questions. I guess I also read an article you did in Fortune, which also pops up, and you noted that you really admire what you call the double hitters, mm. guys like Jack Dorsey with Square and Twitter, or Elon Musk with, it, with probably his triple hitter. Now, yeah, I I just, the guy's uh, just on a roll there. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, you know, having hit a home run with sail through. Are you ready to come up to the plate again? Do you imagine that you would? It was. I imagine it was such a personal investment. I mean, do you have it in you to, to do this more? Is it I, an addiction. I, I absolutely have it in me to do it again, uh, but not yet. Right. Um, the uh, I've still still got a lot to do, uh, and uh, a lot. I believe so much in what we can do with sail through that uh, it's going to be a while. Um, but yeah, there will definitely be a there will definitely be a second second version of sometime. You know, I think that's probably a fantastic. Uh, dramatic place to end. Uh, so <laughs> let's leave it at that. I, I really want to thank you so much for uh, for for joining us. It's been uh, great. This is the first uh, first podcast I've had that I'm finishing sweating. Uh, you know, because because of someone else's story. So. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I lived it a little, uh, even though I definitely did not. Uh, it's, it's crazy. But uh, no, thanks so much for for being here, and sharing your time and your story. Damn, not at all. Thanks for having me. It's been great. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. 
and great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.